So uh, welcome everyone to our ongoing fall session of the Collaboratorium series. As you know, for those who've joined a number of these in the past, it's sort of a cross-disciplinary initiative between the Director's College, the Executive MBA in Digital Transformation, and the Health uh, Leadership Academy at McMaster. So crossing the faculties of health sciences and management, and tipping a little bit into the engineering space too with some of uh, our colleagues. Um, I'm your webinar host, uh, Professor Michael Hartman. Uh, also happen to be the principal, exec director, and co-director of the projects I've just mentioned, which makes for a long title. But our, uh, our webinar series kind of uh, examines how leadership, governance, and innovation best practices are evolving in real time, and what this means for boards, uh, senior executives, and our emerging leaders. Today we focus on so the issue of uh, technology and its impact on uh, on organizations. Uh, as you know, each session is an informal uh, conversation with my guests where we'll ask them to reflect on three simple yet complex questions. Uh, first, uh, to comment on what they've come to recognize as you know, the best practices and principles in their areas of expertise, experience. Uh, second, to reflect a little bit on uh, how board directors and executives are trying to apply these practices and principles uh, in our current environment. Uh, what are the workarounds? What are people giving more priority to, less priority to? What are the changing needs? And finally, uh, to share with us their thoughts on what might be the new set of practices and principles when we finally emerge into not the old new normal, but some new version of the normal at some point. Um, now, for those of you who do not know Rob Burgess, and I think there's a number on the call, Rob, that remember fondly our fireside chat at your place. Uh, so in uh, California, lots of good conversations with the EMBA students. Uh, and one of my good, uh, good friends who uh, is no longer with us, but uh, Steve Cox. Uh, Steve Cox had always thought about uh, working together and doing that uh, penultimate case study on all of the interesting things you've navigated through, Rob. So Rob is uh, beyond graduating from the DeGroote School of Business in 1979 with a Bachelor of Commerce. In 84, he became the first Canadian employee at Silicon Graphics. We all remember Silicon Graphics, a hot, hot new startup at the time in the emerging field of 3D computer graphics. And in 1990, became VP of Applications and moved to Silicon Valley. He then returned to Toronto to become CEO of Alias Research, a young public company which became the leader in high-end 3D software and I remember staring at that, uh, that Oscar statue you had in your window many years ago for the work that, uh, that uh, Alias had been doing in this space. So uh, it was a pleasure meeting you way back when already. Um, in 95, Alias was purchased by Silicon Graphics for 460 million. And Rob integrated Alias and Wavefront with Silicon Graphics as president. From 96 to 2005, he served as CEO and later as chairman of Macromedia, the largest company in uh, technologies to make CD-ROMs at the time. He led his transformation to be the leader in interactive multimedia tech for the internet. And Macromedia was acquired by Adobe in 2005 for 4 billion, uh, one of the largest software deals in history at the time. Rob joined Adobe's board of directors where he still serves and he also currently serves on NVIDIA's Board of Directors as Chair of the Compensation Committee. 
So we're off. Based on your board and you know vast experience as an executive and director, can you reflect on why it's so challenging for large legacy organizations to respond to rapid change in their marketplace due to factors like disruptive innovation? And everyone talks about how the pandemic, the pandemic has forced organizations to be more agile. Agile has become a beyond a buzzword, a cliche. Everybody talks about it. Very few can practice it, I think, uh, properly. And that's a conversation with Rob Siegel. But with all of that, Rob, give us your thoughts, your reflections. Well, hello, everybody. <clears throat> um, I'm uh, coming to you from Kabul. Um, we fled the country uh, a few days ago. I got three boys in tech sales. And they're just starting off in their career, 25, 24, and 24. And so they're selling software into Canada and the U.S. here from Cabo, and nobody knows the difference. So, you know, my belief uh, overall <clears throat> is, uh, you know, at least half uh, of, of uh, facilities and locations and offices is just never going to go back to the way it was. That's certainly what we're seeing. But the question that... Um, that I uh, concentrated on um, for this one is uh, really how does a board help in digital transformation? Uh, now, in order to do that, the board needs to be qualified, same as anything else. Virtually everything in digital transformation has happened over the last 20 years and most of it over the last five years or so. Now, this is not a racial statement, but it could be misconstrued as such already by Rob. <laughs> but uh, basically, the old white guys need to step aside if they're not from the digital economy. You know, most of the most of the population of boards, uh, even today, are old white guys. So they need to step aside because they're not qualified. I'm not talking about using text and email uh, or even you know, having some e-commerce. Think about each of your careers and when you were in a place where you may be now, where you understood everything about your business. You understood the customers, you understood your internal systems, you understood the gestalt of the whole thing. That's because you lived it every minute. You knew every nuance. You knew every changing thing. Think about how well you knew your business. Think about that for a moment. Now companies are thinking about how their boards can come up to speed on digital transformation, cybersecurity, and so on. I've heard some recommendations like an hour of training once a quarter to educate the board. Well, it can't be done, and it's not even close. Let's say you hired a board member for your mining company who had no mining experience. Would an hour or even a day, a quarter be sufficient to educate them on, on mining? No, it wouldn't. And it's even tougher for digital. My personal journey might be of some help here. I was on the audit committee of Adobe for 14 years and the audit committee at Rogers for several years as well. And before that, Macromedia and Alias. I'm qualified by the SEC as a financial expert <clears throat> because I was a public company CEO. I would never dream of chairing an audit committee because I didn't come up as a financial professional. 
audit committees should be run by true financial experts, people who came up as financial executives like CFOs, CPAs, CAs. Now, while I can contribute and follow along, I don't know all the nuances they do and never will. They ask detailed questions I would have never thought of. Now, I've had over 30 years of direct involvement, but it's still not enough. The fact of the matter is that all businesses, all businesses are digital already. The ones that get this might be around for a while. The rest won't be, as we are seeing. When do you think the board of, the board of Toys R Us realized they were competing against Amazon? My point is that although people may have had outstanding careers as CEOs or CFOs and are on the darling list of board candidates because they are wise and well-traveled, they can't actually compete with the kids who are running the new economy. They don't know the new dynamics and can't actually be trained up with quarterly sessions. They are completely disadvantaged by lack of knowledge in the complete change of modern corporate America, corporate Canada. <clears throat> How they were successful 10 or 20 years ago is basically moot. The digital dynamics have completely taken over. Not taking over, have taken over. Look at the market caps of companies and the startups that are already worth a lot more than the large cap companies in Canada, and they've only been around for a decade. Now you might be on, if you're a candidate, you might be on some social media sites or even follow the conversations, but it's nowhere near enough. You, know, you need to know the differences in all the platforms, what they mean and what your company's strategy ought to be in every area, external, internal, customer support, financial planning and everything else. And you can't learn this by just watching. You can only learn it by doing. You learn by living the daily consequences of decision-making. You learn by being up against formidable odds. You learn by overcoming some of them. So now back to the age, race, and gender point I started off with. Old white guys get appointed to boards because of their vast experience and success, but they had these opportunities years ago when women and people of color did not have these opportunities to get this experience and it's time to change. At both Adobe and NVIDIA, we have leaned totally into these societal, societal dynamics and the results have been remarkable at every level. People from different backgrounds and experiences have shockingly brought incredible new perspectives to board discussions. Trouble is you can't find many executive, executives who've been around 40 years and know digital. The ones that do have their pick of the crop. You might not be able to recruit the CEO of Salesforce, Stripe, or Slack, or even a top executive. Why would they bother with old economic models they're crushing? Instead, look for up-and-coming executives with digital being practically their middle names. They might be a VP in their 30s or 40s, but they have lived the journey you all need to be on for the last decade or two. It's easy to get the classic adult supervision, but the kids are running the asylum now and for a while, if not forever. <clears throat> so 
The best candidates are women and people of non-white ethnicities. It's a global economy, right? So how much of your TAM is white? Are the old white guys gonna have insight into what a young woman in Asia is gonna to respond to? Or for that matter, a young gay Asian in Vancouver? No, they're not. So you need to build your boards with the new expertise in the underhyped reality of the digital economy. You need to recruit board members who have actually been living in this world over the last decade. They don't need to have run a big P&L. By the way, that model of management is also very dated. A lot of the energy of your entire company is based on goals and allocating expenses, and it can be endless. You all know this drill. They don't need to have reported quarters. They don't, frankly, need most of the criteria on current Canadian board searches. They need to be deep in understanding digital technology and its impact on actually every single thing. The metrics you've been using now are all wrong. You gotta hire intelligence, knowledge, women, and diversity, and give your, company, give your companies a chance to compete. If candidates are not using Slack every day, pass on them. Hiring someone who's not using Slack would be like hiring a board member who doesn't know how to use a telephone machine in the 70s. Slack, if you don't know, is the modern way businesses communicate. If you're not a current board member, and particularly not an old white guy, the news is very good for you. In Silicon Valley, old white guys are not even on the board candidate menu anymore. We are looking for current modern expertise, women and ethnic diversity. This is immense societal and corporate governance progress. Boards are better when members have lived the lives of its customers, the lives of its customers and the new realities of running a fucking railroad. If I was building or overhauling a board and could pick between the CEO of some big company, say Alcad or any, I don't even know that company very well, but just pick any Canadian firm. If I could hire the CEO of, of a big company, or I could get a digital marketing exec from Chegg or a digital product exec from Roku, I would go for the young stars with much less experience, but who grew up digital. I feel okay saying old white guy because I am one. I'm now 63 and I spent my whole career in digital. I'm delighted to see the next generation in business, research and academia who are not old white guys joining our boards. Our boards are vastly improved with diversity and expertise. They have different views. What a shock. So I have one word of advice for you in all your many capacities and posts. Digital. It's like the graduate. Remember the scene with the one word about the future? Plastics. <clears throat> if you don't remember this, you're probably a better candidate. <laughs> but if you do, plastics was a niche, a fad, and actually a joke metaphor in the movie. Digital is more like the future, future of humanity requires food. <laughs> if you are ambitious, get digital however you can. If you don't, you'll end up in plastics, which are fine in a way. If you wanna go get a great board job, go digital. It's what every board needs. 
And if you're a non-digital old white guy, enjoy the sunset. That's my- Thank you, Brian. Thank you, Ruth. Always, yeah, you, you, you get straight to the heart of things. So that was great. And uh, my only comment, uh, having spent a little bit of time with my colleagues, Robin Robin in uh, Palo Alto, old is a relative term. Uh, it might start, at, uh, if, uh, if you're older than 25, uh, perhaps in, in, this, in the valley, that's also getting a little bit old too, it seems sometimes. So, uh, On that though, I'm gonna ask my second guest is my colleague, Rob Siegel. Uh, so Rob uh, is a lecturer in management at the Stanford uh, Graduate School of Business, where he currently uh, still teaches five courses. That's correct. Still teaches five courses. The Industrialist Dilemma, Systems Leadership, Strategic Management of uh, Technology and Innovation, Strategies and effect, Effective Product uh, Management, and Entrepreneurial Finance. I got all five. Um, He's led primary research and written cases on uh, Google, and my EMBA students will remember Charles Schwab, Daimler, AB, uh, InBev, Good Case, Box, Stripe, Target, the list goes on and on, 23andMe. Um, prolific case writer, and I always look forward to Rob's cases. Uh, he also has uh, a, a, a broader life outside of the academic environment. So previously GM of the video and software solutions divisions of GE Security, EVP of Pixum Inc. and co-founder and CEO of Weave Innovations, uh, network servicing developed that developer that invented the first digital picture frame in the world, is interesting. Uh, co-authored several articles for HBR, California Management Review, Wall Street Journal, he also is the co-inventor of four patents. So a, a Renaissance man of many, many talents. He holds a BA from UC Berkeley and an MBA from Stanford. Rob, can I ask you to reflect on the same question, but with respect to your own experience confronting you know, the industrialist dilemma, uh, maybe remind our attendees what you mean by the term and do you see organizations get, getting better at addressing this dilemma in the current environment, but of course, certainly address Rob's overarching thesis, but you got to shuffle the board at the top. All right, so I'm going to come, I'm going to come back to Rob Burgess in a second because there's a tremendous amount of what he said that I agree with very strongly, but I want to come at it from perhaps a slightly different lens. Let me start first with what I'm seeing. Um, I think that that some companies are actually successfully going to be going through uh, the digital transformation, but I'm actually seeing a world where the best and winning companies are blending the boast of digital and physical. Said differently, they're both smart and strong. Uh, you look at a company like Amazon, their ability to be operationally excellent while at the same time be leaders in artificial intelligence, infrastructure of, of data and of, of, of computing power is a really interesting thing that you've got a single company with both competencies. And I think the thing that I very strongly agree with my colleague, Mr. Burgess about is this notion that you have to stay current. And, and the way that I wanna look at this differently, in Silicon Valley historically, you had this, what I would be referred to as a Schumpeterian creative destruction. So I had the blessing of working for Andy Grove, the CEO of Intel, and, and you know, I helped him with his research on only the paranoid survive. And Andy used to talk about Schumpeter's, this idea that you invent new things to destroy what came before you. And that was acutely true in the Valley and acutely true of technology. And what's happened now is companies are blending the best of digital and physical. You're seeing a lot of these upstarts go after more traditional industries. 
And, and what I'm finding is that the best organizations, be they incumbents or disruptors, are taking the best practices of both. So Rob Burgess talked about this notion of what I would call authenticity. Do you really understand the problem of a particular industry if you're going to be able to solve the problems or as a board member add value? And so I think there, there has to be almost kind of this natural curiosity that you have to have as a leader if you want to be able to keep yourself current. There are several times in my life when I have had to molt my skin because technology or markets had moved past me and it was incumbent upon myself to make sure that I stayed current. And so you're right, one hour every quarter to learn something is irrelevant. The question is on a daily basis, do you have the habits of trying to understand new platforms? Do you have the desire to understand how are new companies doing things? And just as importantly, how do those new companies think? So I, the way I kind of look at the, what I'm seeing with the best organizations is they're trying to find a way to not throw out the baby with the bathwater. In particular, if you've got, let's say you are running a railroad. So you know, I've had Carl Ice, the CEO of BNSF, as a visitor in my classes at Stanford. In the United States, BNSF is our country's largest railway. Carl has a very deep domain knowledge of understanding how railroads run and why they run a particular way. But he is acutely aware and acutely paranoid of where things are happening outside of his industry that could impact his industry. From what you could have on autonomous vehicles and trucking, what could happen in shipping and how all that could impact his environment. And I would say that as board members, what's incumbent upon you as leaders is to make sure that every five, 10, 15 years, are you molting your skin? In fact, one of the greatest lessons that I ever learned from this was taught by me, to me, excuse me, by a woman by the name of Katrina Lake. For those of you who don't know Katrina, she's the CEO of a company called Stitch Fix. She was the youngest CEO, female CEO, to take a company public that she had founded. And Katrina asks herself and asks her uh, direct reports every year, would you hire yourself for your position today? And if not, why not? And what do you need to do in order to stay relevant? And I think that's the biggest mindset change that leaders need to take, that what's happening now in a world where barriers are breaking down, in a world where here I'm talking to you from the Bay Area, Rob is in Cabo, Michael's uh, in Canada, and you're all over the world. I'm actually able to teach courses, conduct workshops anywhere. But I've done workshops during the pandemic in, for Riyadh, for Sao Paulo, uh, for, for Kuala Lumpur, much less the United States and Europe. And so what you're going to see now in this flattening of the world, the ability to use collaboration tools and communication tools, the ability for people to kind of reach out to other parts of the world, you as leaders will need to stay current. Now, I strongly disagree with my partner in crime here, Mr. Burgess, who's actually, by the way, way smarter and way more successful than I'll ever be. I don't think the old white guys, I don't think that they need to kind of just step out of the way. Because basically, when you take that to the logical extreme, they should just hurry up and die. And that's actually the wrong answer. I think the right answer is you as leaders, no matter what your gender is, no matter what the color of your skin is, no matter how old you are, have to commit over and over and over again to making sure you're staying current and making sure you are learning new things, while at the same time making sure you don't lose some of the domain knowledge that helped you get there. One of the best phrases that I ever heard about this was uh, the former CEO of Intuit would talk about the need for fresh eyes and wise eyes. You need to have and have the desire for fresh eyes and to learn new things. If you don't have Snapchat on your phone, you better put it on your phone to understand what your children are doing and how they're looking to communicate with their colleagues and how they expect to be able to communicate with businesses. But by the same token, I always tell my CEOs in the venture business, 
Go make original mistakes, not the mistakes that other people have made. Be smart enough to learn from history, but also be able to push boundaries so that you know new things that are happening. So I think in the context of boards, if you're gonna be helpful, yes, you need a board that is diverse from age, diverse from gender and diverse from race. I mean, by the way, when I teach at Stanford, it's the most amazing thing. It's like teaching at the United Nations. But what I wanna encourage all of you to do, no matter how old you are, no matter what your skin color is, no matter whether you have two X chromosomes or one X chromosome, what I wanna encourage all of you to do is make sure you're staying fresh because the barriers that are gonna allow people and companies to come across boundary conditions is flatter than it's ever been and it's more permeable than it's ever been. You may not see where the attack is coming into your industry and you better be able to be nimble enough to know how to deal with it. So I guess what I would say in summary, Michael, is I think some companies do get it. They are embracing it. They are going after it aggressively. But for all of you as leaders, you need to look in the mirror every morning to make sure that you're owning the fact that you're not getting old. Getting old is a choice and it's a choice that you make. Wow, wonderfully said, uh, Rob. And, and maybe uh, uh, it gets me to think of a couple of follow-up questions. Uh, and I'll start with Rob S and then, then go to Rob B or, or both Robs can, can uh, jump in on this. Um, what I found fascinating doing these sessions, so I've done 40 of these webinars. Um, so I've become sort of like a, the late night host without the budget or without the humor, I guess, to a certain extent, except for my guests. Um, but what's interesting, all my uh, hosts or guests are in spots around the world. So I'm looking at our attendees. I've got colleagues from uh, Europe, from Australia, from the States, from Canada. We're all sitting in our, in our, a little bit of our bubble right now. And in that bubble, it's sometimes easy to say, well, the future is this but the future is this quite different in another space. So with that caveat in mind, um, I'm gonna ask you Rob S, just to think, well, what are the, the, the kind of the, the firms that are actually sort of navigating this, this environment probably more successfully, those that are kind of navigating that industrialist dilemma right now more successfully, what are they learning by this experience? What do you think they're gonna hold on to and what are they gonna, are they gonna stop doing once we get to some sort of new normal? All right, so what I'd like to do is approach that. I want to look at a couple of incumbents and then a couple of disruptors. Yeah. Uh, on the incumbent side, um, I, I've been so impressed with companies like Target uh, and Home Depot. And I, and I highlight those as retail companies because they have had to completely adapt their cultures uh, by integrating how artificial intelligence and machine learning has changed not only what they sell online, but how they basically blended that in with their store environments. And you're seeing kind of that they both had a great run the last three to four years. And since the pandemic started, it's only accelerated. Uh, and they kind of embraced this notion of they were gonna invest uh, in times that were challenging. They kind of ran towards the disruption. And I think that's a key attribute of leaders is this ability of you can't hide from it when it's coming. Uh, Rob uh, B. talked about Chegg. Dan Rosenzweig, the CEO, is one of the most amazing leaders I've ever met. When you meet him, like he looks at the education business and says that's ripe to be disrupted. And he has this very different view of how education uh, is going to evolve. Uh, he looks a lot at how this notion of when you go to university that the, someone goes for four years, that's a very staid and yesterday notion that you look at the students today who are in university, actually in the United States, the average person is 25 years old and actually has a child. And how do you help that person become educated and continue to stay educated? So I think you're seeing some companies that, that are, again, trying to figure out 
where are opportunities that industries can be disrupted? And you know, one final one that I'll talk about that I'm very impressed by, uh, Majid al Qutain, which is the, the Arab world's largest developer of shopping malls, uh, lots of, uh, of malls that they've developed throughout the Middle East. They've really kind of embraced this idea of a place to go where shopping malls, and especially in the heat of summer, and a lot, a lot of part of the Arab world becomes a more than just you know purchasing something. It's the nature of experiences or something we talk about. But they figured out how to layer on digital because they know that's what their customers want to do. That's how they know how people want to buy. So how do they give that great experience? So those are the ones that I see that I think I think are, are trying to figure out either from an incumbent standpoint, how do they evolve? And from a disruptor standpoint, how can they deliver a great experience for the customer and focus on customer outcomes and try to figure out what is authentic and in a particular domain and how to meet a customer's needs? Thank you. Uh, you, you, uh, you bring up a fond memory. Alpha Tim was a was a, a, a client for many years. So I spent many times in a lot of those malls in Dubai, so <laughs> know them well. Um, Rob uh, B, I've got a, a slightly different question for you. Um, so I've got a number of my director's college um, sort of alumni on the call. And when we teach our director's program, we say, hmm, of all the core responsibilities as a board, you know, it could be very well that, you know, selecting, uh, uh, sort of assessing your CEO is the most important because if you don't get that right, it doesn't really matter what comes next. And when I look at NVIDIA, your market cap now is your, your what, number 15 um, in terms of the global market caps out there, just behind MasterCard and P&G. So I've had a chance to meet your CEO. So, so maybe talk a little bit about, about that notion of the board's engagement with the, C, the CEO, that, that relationship and how you've managed that effectively at NVIDIA. Um, I once heard uh, a, a responsibility of a board was to hire and fire CEOs and buy and sell companies. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it's not wrong, um, but um, uh, tell a little um, a historical story here uh, which addresses some of the points that you uh, uh, also addressed to Rob S. Um, so um, Silicon Graphics really pioneered 3D graphics. And, you know, they were the darling in the 80s and early 90s in, um, in um, high performance 3D graphics, which turns out has a whole bunch of applications, but at the time they were pretty narrow. And Silicon Graphics, for some reason, had the idea that it wanted to be a company that sold products that had over 50% gross margin. That was the strategy. They didn't want to be a company that had gross margins under 50% because a lot of the executives there had come from HP and didn't want to run a commodity business like printers. So that was their strategy. A lot of the people in the company could see that chips going into PCs was going to overtake the performance of workstations by a factor of 10 or 100 or 1,000 for the same price. And so they didn't go for it. They lost Jim Clark, their founder, over that discussion. Jim wanted to put chips in PCs. So in the late 90s, as Silicon Graphics was faltering, that's when NVIDIA got founded. They got founded actually by Jensen. And he raised a million dollars from Sequoia and a million dollars um, from Sutter Hill, two million bucks at the end of the 90s. 
Those board members, by the way, those venture capital, they're still on the board at NVIDIA. And they went about building this company that was making chips primarily for gaming. Gaming was the, was the big application. A lot of people still refer to NVIDIA as a gaming chip company. But uh, a few years ago, uh, maybe about 10 years ago, or seven, we decided to put several billion dollars into software stacks on top of that same chip architecture. Uh, and those software stacks <clears throat> would be for new applications like artificial intelligence, self-driving cars, high-performance supercomputing, but still with one chip architecture, but the ecosystem, the software, the ecosystem on top of it. And it happened that that worked. Artificial intelligence is kind of a, a, a funny one. I was selling artificial intelligence, uh, computers for artificial intelligence in the 80s. A lot of people were talking about it, writing books about it, but it didn't work because the computers were a billion times too slow. But once we realized we had that performance in the new chip architecture so much stronger than AI would actually be possible. And, and so that's worked. But at NVIDIA, I would guess 10% of the engineers are hardware engineers. Everybody else is software. And what NVIDIA really gets is the, uh, the ecosystem. That's a moat that has years and years and years. You, can't, you, you might be able to come up with a faster chip, but it's the ecosystem and the developer's ecosystem. So, but just a word on, on Jensen um, uh, and the way he runs the company. And this is an example of what I was saying, P&Ls. You know, P&Ls used to be the big way you're going to manage a company. And so you can have P&Ls to sort of sort things out and look at the profitability a little bit. But um, running companies with allocation games uh, is just a huge amount of wasted effort. At NVIDIA, uh, Jensen has 25 direct reports. Uh, there are no P&Ls. Uh, you have to break some things out for the for the uh, uh, for the financial community, just in terms of uh, markets. Um, but there are no PLs. I've been on the board there eight years, and I've never seen an org chart. Um, they may have one, but nobody thinks about them. Nobody thinks about. We've taken away variable compensation for the salespeople uh, because the company knows how to swarm and work together. There are zero politics. There are zero discussions about money. The, it, it, everything is about the purpose, super focused. And um, it's, um, uh, it's incredible actually to, to see this company and what it's become um, over the last uh, decade, particularly. Uh, it was a great pleasure meeting, having some time uh, to chat uh, to uh, to your CEO, who's been recognized as, as the outstanding CEO by a number of uh, publications. Um, it gets Harvard Business. That, Harvard Business Review does a does a, a, yeah. a thing um, every year, top uh, the top one hundred CEOs on earth, and uh, he last year he was number one. It's not just that year's performance; it's just it's yeah. multi-year performance, multiple metrics. 
But that also gets me to think this term ecosystem and, and, and Rob asked me, I apologize about name another academic from another institution, but uh, Henry Cheeseborough at, mm -hmm. uh, at Berkeley talks about open innovation, you know, dotted lines around all the silos inside and out, which gets me to think about your whole concept, Rob S around systems leaders who think across ecosystems and maybe just, just some thoughts on that, Rob. You know, it's funny, uh, I picked up on it as soon as Rob B. said that, and the, the serendipity of the universe, I'm writing a, a book and I'm finishing the chapter on ecosystems. And so the thing about ecosystems is you're trying to figure out how to move other people along a path, hopefully with you in a way where both, all parties end up being stronger together than apart. And so the, the idea of systems leadership is understanding the interactions inside of an organization between people and functions, outside of an organization between, uh, could be government, it could be other companies, it could be your channel. And leaders today need to understand what's the flow, what's the vectors of these interactions. Uh, I often encourage leaders to take times building an influence map on an industry and understanding who's influencing who and how and why. And then if you overlay what sometimes is called a heat map, who's under stress and why, or who's got opportunity and why. And then you can start to figure out the dynamics of how will organizations or parts uh, of companies start to exist if they're under stress or if they have opportunity. And so, you know, uh, Henry, th that, that idea of learning to see the fluidity in things as opposed to the rigidity in things. And I think this is, you know, this notion of not having an org chart. I, it's one of those things that can sound very appealing and I think the power of that idea is not whether or not you do or don't have an R, an R chart. The power is, do you see things dynamically moving and changing? And, and, and do P, and organizations understand that the enemy is outside of the building and not inside, right? You know, you're trying to sell products, serve customers and meet their needs. And, and so if you spend all your time fighting over budgets with your colleagues internally, like you're fighting the wrong battle. Like if you're doing that inside of your company, update your LinkedIn profile, your company's gonna die. Because like it's just, it's too late. You're optimizing for all the wrong variables. And so this idea of ecosystems is if you know kind of the North Star that you're sailing towards and you know that you can't do it all yourself, you need to bring other people along with you. Do you understand their businesses? Do you understand what's happening in their organizations? Do you understand what's happening in their supply chains so that you can anticipate what they might do? And can you like bring them along in a way that it actually is win-win? And by the way, not everybody you're going to want to bring along. It's not like everybody's going to sing Kumbaya. In business, you're going to look to meet a customer need and solve that problem, figure out who are your fellow travelers to bring along with you. And that's where you want to focus your energies. So I, I think this notion of getting comfortable with change, I think the, you know, I used to joke around that at Intel, you know, we used to be a microprocessor company. We used to be a, a semiconductor company that mattered until NVIDIA kicked its ass. Um, but but it, it, the worst one I ever saw was I actually do is studying a very large European uh, 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 industrial company and they hadn't reorganized for 20 years. Think about that. They hadn't reorganized for 20 years. How in the world could they have been meeting the customer's needs if they stayed in their own silos and in their own functions and hadn't figured differently that the world had changed? Right? That has to be that mindset, again, of molting your skin and playing offense. And so that's, I think, when you think about ecosystems, that's like, who can you bring along with you on your team? Very well said. Thank you, Rob. Um, uh, we're shortly going to do something a little different and get everybody... Uh, you I don't know, like change. I don't like change. I, um... <laughs> 
<laughs> but and by the way, to, to Rob's point there, right? He says that jokingly. No human being likes change. It's a big lie. We all say embrace change. Change sure. is constant. Humans don't like change. And your role as leaders is to get people to make those changes with enthusiasm. Yeah, yeah, very well said. Uh, so we'll do a little change. I won't make it too difficult though. Um, shortly, we're gonna get everybody on board so we can see your faces around the virtual table and we can have a facilitated Q and A. Um, but that's gonna take a couple of minutes. Uh, my colleagues are uh, gonna be changing everybody to a co-host so we can see you up on the screen. But in those few minutes that this will take, um, I'm going to ask uh, sort of Rob and Rob, well, I was going to say Rob S and Rob B, <laughs> uh, what's one thing that uh, for those that may have to leave us right now um, because of uh, other, uh, other things on their agenda, one thing you'd want them to take away from our dialogue over the last 40 minutes or so. So uh, Rob B, first one thing. Um, well, <clears throat> never to shy from a fight. Um, Rob, Rob, <laughs> uh, Rob commented on my old white guy, um, uh, racial, gender, everything <laughs> comment. And I agree with you, it doesn't matter skin color, sex, etc., except we're in a hole that, you know, for the last 20, 30, 50 years, the people who got the experiences that boards were looking for. You think of the stereotype of what a board member looks like, I can picture them. You know, they've got gray hair. That's what was, the, you know, we were used to recruit. We're looking for some gray hair. Um, and so we've got catch up to do. There are so many talented people. And when I say old white guys aren't on the menu in Silicon Valley uh, for board candidates, that's actually true because we've got so much catching up to do with women and diversity. So. Um, and then hopefully we get to a steady state when those things don't matter, but we're a few years, it's going to take several years to get to the place we should have been a long time ago. So. Rob. Actually, I agree with Rob B there. Um, you know, the, the, in fact, in the venture industry, it's the one of the parts of Silicon Valley that has changed the least uh, and, and is, has paid the price for it. And rightly so has the, has the, the industry paid the price for it. I guess the one thing I want you all to leave with, I agree with what B said, but if you happen to find yourself as an old white guy, like the three of us are, um, we also have the ability to change. We also have the ability to embrace new things. And we also have the ability to make positive contributions on a go forward basis. The universe is not zero sum. That, the, I think the notion that this, this idea that the, the universe is zero sum and there are no opportunities on boards for old white guys. I would say old white guys who have not kept themselves current and aren't adding and haven't built a network, by the way, with organizations and people that don't look like themselves, they will have no role in the future. But I think there are huge opportunities for everybody. If you wanna like be excited, hang around the young people. Like the greatest thing I get to do is teach 400 of the most brilliant minds from all over the planet. They teach you the art of the possible and what might be able to happen with enthusiasm and energy. And we as experienced leaders, we can draw on that energy. We can guide that energy. We can coach that energy. There are so many great things that are happening right now, despite the fact that we're all locked in our homes in the middle of a pandemic. We're gonna to get to the other side of this pandemic and there's gonna be great opportunities for all of us. I know this. I was delighted to hear that your classroom looks like the United Nations. 
That's it's the most awesome. It's the most awesome thing ever, Rob. Next time I'll bring you to class. Like you look up at these the kids. They're in their mid twenties and thirties. They're the most amazing human beings on the planet. Oh, the two Robs. My my little comment to that is uh, to your point, Rob Siegel. I agree. When I've, I've made the comments, likewise, you know, that's uh, where is the youth on the board? Uh, where are you getting, you know, your, 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 your new perspectives? I'm also mindful of the fact, though, there's a lot of uh, kind of uh, uh, more experienced, a little uh, with a little bit more gray hair that are still reinventing themselves. And that gets back to your point around education, how ripe we are for disruption. In uh, this path, that it's it's all about how do you continue that journey throughout all the decades. What's this idea about gray hair? I don't understand that comment. <laughs> <laughs> it was Fair an enough. Andy Ball <laughs> remark, actually. I've been triggered. Uh, <laughs> so as you can see, we've got we've got an audience from all over. So um, so I'm going to encourage everybody, if you can, come on video. Um, if you can, join by video so we can have a dialogue here for the next uh, 20 minutes, 10, 20 minutes, depending where we go. Um, we'll have a conversation. All I'm going to ask is that if you uh, want to ask a question or make a comment, you introduce yourself, tell us where you're coming in from, what part of the world or what part of the, the house, uh, and ask away. And maybe um, to kick things off, uh, I can see Lizolette joining us here from Sweden, and who'll be speaking in uh, January will be one of our sessions around effective boards, um, the role of an effective board chair, uh, together with Bob Katz, uh, uh, Rob from uh, UCLA, who's gonna be joining us. So Lizalette, maybe I'll put you on the spot if that's okay. Any thoughts or comments? Yes, no, thank you so much, guys, fantastic. Um, one of the things that I'm curious about uh, in your experience is you, you both have fantastic CEOs. So my kind of question is, what is the role of the board? What are you contributing with? You have these fantastic CEOs. What is your contribution? <laughs> Rob, that's for you. And then Rob S. Uh, one of the things, you know, uh, one of the things that I uh, talked about at NVIDIA when um, uh, over the last few years is uh, NVIDIA got a bad taste in its mouth uh, on M&A. They didn't really have an M&A I think, you know, years and years ago, they had a couple of uh, acquisitions, didn't go well. So they had a culture that sort of ignored M&A. <clears throat> and then um, Mellanox, Israeli firm, high-speed networking for the data center, um, uh, had to sell itself. Uh, we were completely happy with them being neutral, but uh, they uh, there was some board dynamics, some ownership dynamics, and they came up for sale. <clears throat> so they had a um, we had a special committee uh, to look at the Mellanox uh, acquisition. And I remember walking into the room and seeing the look on Jensen's face. And it was almost a look of desperation. Um, he didn't want to buy it. He wanted it to stay neutral. But if it wasn't going to be neutral, we had to have it. And so it was almost a, a, a look of resignation. And so we worked with him on that acquisition. 
and it was highly successful. The products and the cultures go together very well. And, uh, and at the end of it, um, I remember on a board call commenting on the fact that it was very similar to Adobe. Adobe hated acquisitions, then it bought Macromedia and it gained confidence that that was actually a weapon that they could use. And they developed their muscles right across the organization on integrating other organizations. And since then, Adobe's bought, I don't know, 50 different companies, including some big ones, and they're really good at it. And I passed this story on to Jensen and the other members of the board that once they got the Mellanox acquisition, that they were going to discover they had new muscles in the organization. And this was another tool in their kit bag. And a month later, we got a call that they wanted to buy ARM. <laughs> so for 40 billion. And so I said, well, you seem to have taken that message to heart. <laughs> so now we're on the way to buy ARM, hopefully. So that's an example. Uh, when you have a highly functional CEO, you don't have to micromanage. You don't have, you know, you can talk of, uh, about strategy and you can, and you can um, fill in the pieces. Um, and um, uh, so it's a highly functional board, uh, but it's not like we meet, uh, you know, every week. Um, so that's a couple of tidbits for you there. Hero. Uh, we've got David Fung, and David is joining us from Vancouver, I believe. Yes, uh, well, uh, it's fantastic listening to uh, our speakers, uh, and uh, I would really be taking this recording and pass it on to our governance committee, uh, because we are looking for new board members. And uh, so the two Rob's suggestions would be very useful criteria for us to look forward. Uh, so I, I've, I've started many companies uh, and uh, the one that I'm referring to is the CSA group, uh, which does uh, certification business uh, on all different continents. Uh, and uh, the question is that what would be coming from outside that would completely destroy our business? Uh, and, and that is really a function for the board to contemplate. Uh, but uh, I, I've, I, but I'm, the, I'm 76 years old. Uh, so we had a big fight over whether there should be age limit on boards. Uh, and the question is really what uh, Rob Siegel said. Are we old in age or are we old in knowledge? Uh, and I just uh, have obtained uh, uh, several more US patents and expect to acquire and uh, uh, secure another 10, 20 patents around the world. Uh, so uh, age number itself, I don't believe should be the criteria, uh, uh, but I take in ha to heart what Rob Burgess said about my own ability to learn digital. And so the question I posed on Q&A was saying that, uh, do we really need every one of us to be knowledgeable about digital or should we be aware of our own deficiencies and surround ourselves with talent who are digitally capable uh, so that we would celebrate diversity and change and use that as a foundation uh, for the successful transformation of our business. Thank you. Michael, it's okay if I could take yes, first crack please. at that one? Yeah. 
Um, a, a couple of, of thoughts on this. I, one of the things I'm a big believer is that teams win championships, not individuals. And if teams win championships, you want to look for diverse skill sets, backgrounds, et cetera, on your board. And so that you want to be thinking about, um, do you have a wide variety of perspectives so that, because by the way, we're all biased, right? We all have conscious and unconscious bias. You want to try to minimize those holes you might have when you have conscious, conscious bias. And in fact, if two people, too many people are from the same area, you will miss opportunities that will be outside of your network. And so on the, your question of, you know, is it enough to have kind of, you know, people who are experts, I would argue that's going to be kind of necessary, but not sufficient. You need to bring on people with different perspectives, but it's going to be incumbent upon you as a leader to understand what I like to call the four A's, um, artificial intelligence, analytics, um, automation, and additive, right? These are four new technology trends that are going to have huge, huge impacts on a variety of industries over the next decade. And the question for you is, do you understand what those things are and what, how they're being done? I don't know that everybody needs to sling code. I do know that if you're not slinging code, you better understand what artificial intelligence is and how is it impacting companies and industries and not just at a superficial level. So keep educating yourself and have diverse teams. The other thing that you said that really resonated with me is I talk about globalization 1.0 versus globalization 2.0. Globalization 1.0 was about labor arbitrage. Let's put low-cost manufacturing here. Let's put low-cost engineering here. Let's put low-cost customer service here. It's around the world. Aha, it's a hub and spoke model, but basically it was about labor arbitrage. Globalization 2.0 is gonna be way more insidious and I think way more interesting. I think organizations are gonna run as mesh networks, right? You're gonna have nodes on a network spread around the world connected through this type of capabilities and technologies. And you're gonna be able to do things you couldn't do before. So you're gonna be able to get clusters of centers of excellence and other parts of the world that that couldn't happen. Now, the idea behind this is you may not see the attack coming, right? So a company like Stripe, which is, if you read today's papers, an American uh, company based in San Francisco founded by the brothers Collison, like they are totally upended the, the payments industry. The internal workings of the, of the existing payments industry never saw them coming. So you need to kind of have your radar on high at all times for this. And so what I think you need to kind of be aware of is it's not just going to be your traditional competitors who are going to come after you. It, it can come from somewhere else and it can come from outside of the area within which you work. Thank you. Has, 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 uh, has one of those brothers had his 30th birthday yet? Yes. Um, uh, Patrick is, is, I think, 31 now. Uh, John, I, I don't know how old John is. Um, they are the two of the two of the smartest people I've ever met. <laughs> better better get rid of him. He's aged out. I think thirty. There you go. Exactly. Uh, so a couple of comments. A couple of comments. Um, uh, so, um, uh, David, I I was exaggerating a bit to make a point. Let's say you've got a board of directors with uh, ten people, and let's say one of them knows about digital. Uh, and let's say one of them is a woman, and let's say one of them is a diverse ethnicity, different color. So we need to accelerate. That's not gonna just fix itself. You're not going to have those board members who are not digital, they're not going to be able to get up to speed in enough time to meaningfully contribute to the, the risks that are coming from digital in everything. Um, you, you look at AI, um, uh, AI is not something you tape on to your company. You know, <laughs> AI requires 
rethinking everything about your company. And that really requires um, deep expertise. So I'm talking about the transforming of the board and it needs to be done rapidly. Uh, and, and the end point may well be, there are five people who understand digital of 10 people on the board and that may be sufficient because they can help you hire the right management uh, below them because they know what they're looking for. If you're not digital, you don't really know what you're looking for. And on your age question, no age limit. I agree. I, 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 age, age as a number doesn't matter. Thank you. Thank you, Rob. Uh, to that point, uh, 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 my dean says hello as well. So, who is uh, one of the most creative deans? Uh, uh, um, and age is not a number there either for for him. So. Um, we've got a bunch of my EMBA students here in Directors College. Marwan, you got your hand up, please. <laughs> Hello, uh, my name is Marwan. I'm uh, from Toronto and I just graduated from the EMBA program. Thank you all for your time. I had a question and today's title or today's uh, uh, webinar is about adapting our board to the digital age. Adaptation is about change and we talked about change within this call. I want to differentiate between change and innovation, and I want to get your opinion on this, because I think change inherently is about starting from the world as you think it is uh, versus innovation, and that is the world as it should be. And I think change sometimes has, it, has this inherent outside-in approach where things are happening to you, so you got to adapt to them in the board while innovation is about an inside-out approach where you have people within the field or people within the company uh, the coders, the developers who are actually innovating. And so what is the board's role today in actually creating innovation, if any? Or is it more about adaptation to changes and more of, uh, steering in terms of vision? Rob, yes. Go ahead, Rob. You know, I think that the, the, the board, I think the role of a board member, going back to the question that Lisa posed, Rob's cut out. Uh, do you looks want like me to jump in, Michael, while he gets like back on? Okay. Can you hear me now? It looks like somehow I got muted, which is pretty amazing because I'm about five feet away from my computer. Modern technology. All, All right. right. So, it looks like Marwin's having a beer anyway. There you go. Oh, good for Marwin. Okay. So, um, this notion about innovation, you know, I think as a board, our job is really to be, you know, supporting and pushing management to be doing those things that will allow them to be successful and achieve what their goals and objectives are. Like we're servants as board members, generally to management. Management runs the business. And as long as we're overseeing our, our duty of loyalty and duty of care, the real thing we're supposed to do is to kind of be using our expertise, our networks, et cetera, to be supporting the CEO. And so with innovation, I think part of it is we've got to make sure that companies are not becoming too staid and too focused just on their quarterly numbers, too much just on their uh, you know, kind of the plan at hand, and are they thinking longer term about how the industry will evolve, how their customers are going to evolve, and how the company needs to evolve? Uh, one of the best examples I saw of that was about five years ago when the board of AB InBev uh, really took it to Carlos Brito, who said Brito was just not getting it done innovation wise and was playing, had been playing a very successful playbook for about a decade of acquiring companies. And they kind of said, not enough. 
what are you doing to deal with kind of changes in consumer behaviors uh, and consumer tastes? And I think that's where a board can really be pushing management to be kind of getting out of the tyranny of the urgent and also be exploring the important. Um, I would, uh, I'd have a comment. Um, Rob S can probably give you more of a background, but however it happened, somehow the leading digital innovators came up with a system of compensation for engineers involving equity. And, you know, the, the, the technology industry is really the first and the, and the pioneer of that and, um, and, and continues to lead in that today. That is a currency um, uh, to attract top engineering talent. And uh, it's not just currency, but it's a mentality. So if you, if, if you think your company needs to innovate in some way, every company does, but if you have a specific area, okay, you need to go out and get the top technical talent. And um, you cannot get the top technical talent unless you have the, the situation in which they wanna work. That includes equity, but it also includes the architecture of the project. Um, are you going to, uh, you know, are these people gonna have to go to monthly meetings? Are these people gonna have to answer to the CFO why they have another computer? Or are you gonna create a situation even inside a company where true innovation can occur. And you need the top talent for that. A lot of Canadian companies, for some reason, have not embraced the notion of equity for engineering. Uh, and so if you have that, and they, uh, so as a result, they can't attract the top people, the true innovators. And, uh, and, and, and they also don't have the culture where those people want to work. So they think about innovation, but they don't have the right criteria to get the innovators. So that's a role that the board can play uh, in uh, trying to help them understand that even though the compensation dynamics for one discipline maybe doesn't involve that, you have to compete with the environment of Silicon Valley for top talent, and you do that, and a board can play a role in doing that. Uh, but I also thought your articulation of the difference between change uh, or adaptive change and innovation was right on. Other comments, questions around the table from either my EMBAs or alum or my director's college alum. You know me, I've got lots of questions. So, Yeah, Mark, if we're done, do you have your hand up there? Good Mark? afternoon. Hey, uh, Michael, can you hear me okay? Yeah. Great. Uh, Rob and Rob, good to meet you. Rob, fellow uh, Canadian Torontonian. Um, so, uh, just uh, my question or comment is really around uh, some of the things that have been already talked about in, in terms of uh, uh, having a, you know, again, a digitally savvy board, but, but again, around the question of innovation. And I was just wondering, uh, I wanted to get your perspective on, on something I've observed, because I, I currently work at Oracle and I've been in the technology industry for 35 years. So that's the good news. The bad news is I'm an old white guy, I guess. So, uh, but on the good side- Oh no, side, but you're digital. Yeah, but I'm digital, yes. Um, you know, what I've observed around innovation, we talk a little bit about this in the director's college, uh, is 
I'm not so sure as much of it now is about actual technology as opposed to innovation around business models and going to market and embracing technology in the way you do business. So uh, as an example, you know, I worked at Microsoft at a time under, under Balmer. And when we came out with some different products in different areas outside of office and whatnot, as Steve Ballmer would say, well, what does this do for Windows? To which we would reply, I don't know, and I kind of don't care. Well, we sort of didn't say that, but that's how we felt. Um, but the, his view was very much around how does this support Windows? And we felt, well, we'll pay heed to Windows because it's in the market. You don't need to tell us to do that, right? And then when Satya Nadella took over, a couple of things that he did amongst many things was make Office available in a subscription under cloud infrastructure, which became the foundation of Azure, right? Uh, and also making Office available on Apple computers, which to someone like Balmer would have been heresy, right? But it was a smart thing to do because if someone wants an Apple device, they're going to buy an Apple device, but why throw away a software opportunity that could be thousands of dollars over the lifetime of that customer? So again, I just, I pick a couple of examples and I'm in, I increasingly believe that those innovative thoughts, and I don't really know where they all came from or how much the board may or may not have had any influence in some of those, uh, but I just kind of wanted to get your perspectives on that. And again, being at Oracle, you know, we uh, provide as part of our cloud infrastructure, NVIDIA GPUs. Uh, Rob uh, Burgess, as you may be aware, right, for all kinds of applications that involve high performance graphics and hyper-converged infrastructure. So that was a smart thing in my view that NVIDIA did. And, and we make those products available as part of our, our cloud service, right? So I just, anyway, I, I just wanted to maybe get your thoughts around uh, uh, that innovation around business models that happen to be technically grounded, but it's not purely technology innovation or how I get more cores in a processor or reduce power or whatever, right? Anyway, I wonder if you have thoughts on that. Let me, let me start, Rob. I'm not as articulate as my colleague Rob is in talking about these different dynamics. In my speech, what I said, I called things digital, they were inclusive of what you're talking about. Uh, it, they weren't bits and bytes. They were uh, innovative business models, et cetera. Uh, you know, Uber has a platform, but it, it I was really talking about digital disruption or a disruption enabled by digital technology, but it's inclusive of what you were talking about. You know, I love the way you framed it because when we talk about innovation so often we especially in silicon valley we talk about from a tech side and you look you can look at a company like align technologies which does the plastic teeth straighteners uh, that maybe some of you have used your children have used that was both the technology innovation and the business model innovation by opening new channels and allowing dentists to sell things and so sometimes it's easier for a disruptor because you're not constrained by the past um, and I think that when we think about incumbents, so it's Oracle, a very successful, you know, now an older Silicon Valley company. What's interesting is the leaders inside of existing incumbent organizations are not stupid. In fact, they're actually quite smart. They figured out how to build and scale organizations and to be successful given a set of opportunities and constraints. Um, and my favorite story about this is the story I remember Andy Grove, when I worked for him, told me about, and it's in one of his books, 
1985, Intel was getting its butt kicked, kind of like it is now by NVIDIA. But instead, in those days, it was getting its butt kicked by the Japanese and DRAMs. And they had this new small business in microprocessors, but Intel had invented DRAMs. And the whole organization, the culture, the DNA, the way they thought of themselves really was about being a leader in memory, even though they were just getting killed. And Gordon Moore, who was the CEO at the time, walked into Andy's cubicle and said, hey, Andy, if you and I got fired by the board tomorrow and they brought in new leadership, what would new leadership do? And Andy, without missing a beat, looks at Gordon and says, get us out of memories and focus on microprocessors. Right. Now, Gordon is one of the smartest, most you know, quiet people you've ever met, kind of has this kind of, this, this, the way he carries himself is with grace. And he's kind of quiet and he looks at Andy and says, well, Andy, why don't you and I go walk out the front door and walk back in and do what we already know that we're supposed to do? Now, if you think about it, what I love about that story is you, you take these two people, Andy Grove and Gordon Moore, we can probably all agree they were at least slightly above average. Like they were slightly above average. And if they can become constrained by everything that had made them successful, how do the rest of us handle this, right? Because you, we're all mortals, right? And so as you think about incumbents, I think one of the hardest things, you look at a company like Oracle, even Microsoft, we become so constrained by that which made us great. And it's that part of, I think we know what, what, what Rob B was getting out of, learning new things, that constant desire. And even if you didn't grow up in it, God, you better be experimenting and spending time with new things because all of this, you know, Rob talked about hey, how AI is impacting everything. I've had to bring artificial intelligence into my product management course. How's AI impacting product management? And, and so you all as leaders and as board members need to make sure that you really have more than a superficial understanding if you're gonna be able to contribute to your organization going forward. Yeah. Yeah, very, very good. Well Thank said, you. Rob. Yeah, very Thanks. well said, Rob and Rob. And uh, um, what I'd like to do at, at this moment is to do, you know, uh, I'm looking forward to uh, Rob and Rob to the day that I can share a cup of coffee with you, Rob Siegel, back at the Stanford campus and perhaps pay a visit to your wonderful home again, Rob Burgess, and share like we did once a good glass of, uh, uh, of whiskey. So uh, that's down the pipe, but, but please, um, uh, all of us around the virtual table here, a virtual round of applause as well. That, 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 was, that was marvelous. Really appreciate uh, this. And uh, we'll be sharing a copy of the video with uh, blessings from Rob and Rob. And uh, we'll look for an opportunity to reconnect as a, as a group with uh, one of our upcoming webinars, including a really interesting one, also with a colleague from Stanford tomorrow on research to commercialization. So thank you all. This was great. Really appreciate it. And go Canada. <laughs> <laughs>